Jesus was in that room with us mm-hmm. as, as the third party that was the, the spirit, spiritual presence that was orchestrating that conversation and, and making himself known to both of us. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Missing Voices Project. My name is Justin Forbes, and this podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. I'm convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So, with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. Let's get into it. Okay, Luke Langston, thank you so much for jumping on the Missing Voices Project podcast here. Uh, we have you calling from Durham, North Carolina. That's us. And so, Luke, give us a little background of who you are. You, I know that you work in the federal prison in Butner, North Carolina. You are a chaplain. You go by Chaplain Langston uh, with these, a bunch of these guys you're spending time with. But tell us a little bit about who you are and your background. Sure. Well, um, born and raised in Florida. Uh, both my parents were involved in youth ministry and young life back in the day, so I kind of grew up in that environment. Um, did uh, various stints as uh, a youth pastor across the southeast and in uh, North Carolina and Charlotte and down in Florida and stuff, and um, did that for about 13 years. Uh, in that process, um, in that season, got married, uh, had three kids, went to seminary, got my Master's of Divinity, and did various uh, things in local churches across the southeast, and uh, like I said, did a lot of youth work for about uh, 13 years. That uh, really was a, a joy and uh, life giving to me, and gave me a lot of cool life experiences that I really uh, will cherish forever. Um, <laughs> but so now, as I uh, transitioned, I am in uh, Durham, North Carolina, as you said, as a prison chaplain. Uh, I got a 13 year old, a 10 year old, and a little two year old daughter that uh, wow. take up all my time and. Uh, <laughs> quite a lot of work, but quite a lot of joy. And so, um, but my wife and I, Dana, um, my wife's name's Dana and I, we live here in Durham and, I've uh, been here almost 10 years now. And, uh, wow. it's been a, been a good run for us up here. What a clashing of the worlds. You have your wife, Dana, you've got your three kids, and then you also work in a prison. Those seem like they could be very different sort of whiplash experiences, uh, going from your two-year-old to uh, being a chaplain in a prison, what's that like? Yeah, it's actually a, in a in a weird way, kind of been a, a gift to our family. We um, hmm. working for the local church, as some might know, is a kind of a twenty-four-seven life in a fishbowl. All eyes are always on you, and it's uh, sometimes hard to establish boundaries between uh, work, being the church, and your home and your personal life. And so I, you know dealt with that challenge for, like I said, about 13 years. Right. Um, we made it work. Um, but, uh, now working as a prison chaplain, I clock in seven thirty, clock out at four o'clock. And when I go home, there's about a 15 foot razor wire fence that provides a boundary between work and home for me. <laughs> a very real boundary. <laughs> exactly. And so, uh, 
I can't get work emails at home. I can, you know, usually don't get any phone calls. If I run into a parishioner at the local grocery store, we got a problem on our hands and I got to call the warden. <laughs> That's right. So what I hear you saying, Luke, is we need 15, what did you say, 15-inch razor wire fences at That's our churches? It, I think that's the takeaway for today. Great. Have a good one. That's <laughs> the solution. Okay. So Luke, tell us a little bit about this transition. You went from being a youth minister, working in youth ministry for 13 years. Um, and then obviously the next uh, natural step is to go be a prison chaplain. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting you ask because, uh, gosh, uh, so like I said, I've almost been doing this 10 years. If you would ask me about 11 years ago, uh, Luke, do you ever see yourself going doing prison ministry? I'm like, no, what are you smoking? Not me. What do you, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I um, was in a season of life where uh, my wife had followed me around to support the various churches that I received callings for. Um, and so she would uproot and we would move to, like I said, to North Carolina and to Charlotte and back to Florida and various places. Uh, but when we were uh, down in Florida for our, uh, the last church I worked at, she was finishing up her graduate degree in, in clinical psychology and had to go do an internship out in uh, Wild West, Wyoming. Mm. Um, and so that was my opportunity to say, you know what, I'm going to uproot from what I've always known and I'm going to go out and support you, Dana, and, and what you're doing. Very we good. had a three-year-old, our first son, three-year-old son, Ian, at that time. And we didn't want to throw him in some random daycare. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to take an unofficial sabbatical from ministry and just be at home with Ian, let Dana do her internship, and we'll we'll kind of see what happens next and kind of use that as a chance to kind of unplug from what I'd always known, what I'd grown up with, and see maybe what God had for me next and really try to have an open slate, you know, no agenda. You know, I'll just say, hey, God, if you want me to be a, a banker and love Jesus at the same time, I'm good with that. Very so cool. I kind of went out there and, and really enjoyed the, the experience of kind of just <clears throat> Like I said, unplugging and having a, a great experience in, in Wyoming of outdoor adventure and snowboarding and mountain biking and rodeos and you name it. We did it out there. It was a great, great time for that one year. Just but like I, growing up in South Florida. Exactly. Quite quite the culture shock. Um, <laughs> but it was it was a great, great time. But about six months into that experience, um, I started realizing, you know what, I, I still don't have a, a job lined up in a you know, we got to make some income here soon. So I started to get a little nervous. And so uh, one night I was on the couch in our little apartment in Wyoming and uh, was on Facebook as the early days of Facebook and found an old, uh, actually youth pastor of mine when I was in middle school. His name is Rich, Rich Chamberlain, and uh, found him on Facebook and clicked on his uh, About Me page. And it showed that he was a part-time prison chaplain. I hadn't talked to him in like 10, 15 years. And I leaned over to Dana and said, hey, that's pretty cool. Look, Rich is a, is a prison chaplain. And she looked at me and says, yeah, that is cool. And she goes, I think I could see you doing that, Luke. And I looked at her and kind of had that, you know, weird, you know, big eye look at her. She goes, no, really? I go, what do you mean? She goes, well, think about it. Majority of the kids that you connected with in your, your days of youth ministry were the punks that would be, you know, caught smoking marijuana behind the barn at, at camp and had to be kicked out or sent home. And, you know, the, the skater punk, whatever, just the, the kids that were on the fringe seemed to have a natural attraction to what you were doing as a youth minister. Maybe mm-hmm. that would translate. Hmm. And I kind of did some searching and the rest is history, as they say. So I kind of just did some exploring. I said, well, why not? Let's give it a shot. Wow. I uh, jumped on the old computer and did some searching and found out about the the federal prison uh, system and and how they uh, really take prison chaplaincy seriously. And and I had had the requirements that required the the Masters of Divinity. And I'd often wondered why why I went through all that school, but it it was required for this job. And and, uh, I had the experience. and. found out that the actual federal system, federal prison system, uh, 
seems to know how to pay clergy better than most local churches. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, let's, let's give it a shot. And so that was, like I said, about 10 years ago when we moved our, our family back across to the East Coast and landed in Durham. Wow. Okay, so Luke, you graduated from Flagler College in 1995, and uh, you know the whole context of this podcast is uh, teaching at teaching youth ministry at Flagler College and and working here. Uh, we have been so fortunate to get this grant to work with churches around the state of Florida to uh, try and explore new expressions of youth ministry by focusing on young people at the margins of society uh, and also at the margins of the church often. And so, you know, a couple months back, as I was sitting there thinking about who are the people we want to serve, thinking about incarcerated young people, people that are maybe coming out of detention centers or, or young adults coming out of the prison system. Uh, those are some of the people that I, I was thinking, gosh, you know, like how are we, the church, uh, big, big church, uh, how are we, serving and loving and walking alongside these people uh, that may have had an experience with a detention center or a jail or a prison. And uh, so that's pretty quickly I thought of you. And that's sort of how we ended up, you know, getting on this call together. But yeah. I, I'd love to know, you know, you have this background in youth ministry, and now you've spent a decade in the prison system. You know, my hunch is that there are things that we can learn about youth ministry by focusing on these young people at the margins. Um, and for you, maybe they're not as young. So you probably don't have, you know, your 14 year old or your 15 year old, but these people who have been at the margins of society and definitely at the margins of the church, uh, as they are literally taken away from the local church, you have this beautiful role of, of going into their world, uh, and being able to be in relationship with them and be in true fellowship and community with these folks. What have you learned uh, about yourself, about God, about ministry, by being in relationship with these men in this prison? I realize that's a huge question. So <laughs> get into it however you want, and we'll sure. we'll find our way around. All right. Oh, man. Um, I'll start personally. Um, I think for me, uh, going into um, this, the chaplaincy thing, one thing that I didn't necessarily anticipate, but I've grown to really appreciate is the fact that as I go in as a Christian chaplain, I am also the chaplain for about 17 other faith groups. Wow. And so, um, you know, I, I remember taking world religions class 101, whatever it was at Flagler and kind of thinking, oh, well, whatever, you know, but never, never thinking I'd have to use it like I do on a daily basis today. But I'm, I still consider myself on a steep learning curve, learning all the different religions that I get to oversee and facilitate. Wow. Cool. But, um, I've grown to uh, really appreciate the interaction with the different men of different faiths and, um, and have enjoyed the freedom of not feeling like my job is to go in there with an agenda that I got to make sure that these guys, uh, you know, learn how to follow Jesus and believe just like I do, mm -hmm. but instead to be able to go in there and ask questions and have them teach me about their faith and, have them ask questions about my faith and just kind of shine a light and just a, a constant uh, relational flow of, of love back and forth, just a, a mutual respect and, and uh, learning from one another. And so it's to not have to go in there and, and uh, kind of feel that pressure or agenda to just to do that. And so that that's been beautiful. And I've, I've learned a lot from the, the different groups and the different men. And um, it's just uh, served to, to only strengthen my own personal faith and, and, and broaden it as well. Um, so I, 
I've I personally have appreciated that, and it's been been a gift. Hmm. Um, then, as I've worked with the um, inmates in particular, as I think about it in terms of its connection with youth ministry, um, it's been pretty apparent that I would say um, one of the the biggest or the number one common denominators in the men that I work with on a daily basis is the uh, lack of the father, Hmm. Um, whether it be an absentee dad, whether it be an abusive dad, whether it be a workaholic dad, whether it be the dad that they don't even ever, never knew, never met. Um, It's, it's so apparent as I get to know these guys' stories and they sit in my office or um, they share their little bit of their stories and their journey of how often that is the common denominator that seems to have created a, a void, a, a, a situation that um, it just led to poor decisions, led to a life of, of uh, you know, poor decisions or whatever it is that led to their crime. Sure. Seems to so often be rooted in that kind of hey I, I didn't have a have a male figure a dad that, that cared about me showed me the right, right way and so it, I've, I've noticed what is I call it just this this cycle that mm-hmm. uh, no dad okay go to prison no dad and then what do they do they they talk to me about their kids that they have at home that they don't ever get to see anymore and mm-hmm. uh, the mom's trying to manage you know parenting and single parenting with when dad's locked away for five to ten years or whatever it be so it just it's very apparent. And so as I think back <clears throat> to my youth ministry days of of uh, what we as youth pastors, youth ministers, volunteer leaders have as an opportunity to uh, to invest relationally in providing guidance to uh, those you know young lives that are are trying to find a sense of direction and find a, a model, a mentor, someone to look up to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a huge void that continues to be apparent in our culture Mm. um, that becomes a pipeline to the prison system. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about youth ministry along the lines of the youth minister loving and supporting moms and dads in their work of being moms and dads. And so maybe it's one thing to have a room full of kids. Uh, It might be a whole nother thing to have meaningful relationships with parents and to be a part of their life as they wrestle with how the heck to do this parroting thing. Sure. So hmm. it's a whole idea of kind of, you know, youth ministry really is family ministry. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what, you know, in these conversations in your office or in these services that you might uh, facilitate or lead, you know, what are you experiencing there? I mean, what have you learned about God uh, in these uh, encounters? Oh, man. Um, I learned that... um, God does not uh, limit his his love and acceptance to um, people that look like me, believe like me, and sit in my pew every Sunday morning at eleven o'clock. Mm. Um, that uh, his his love is big, his love is is broad, and um, and is has the power to change and uh, power power to uh, uh, redeem and restore broken lives. Mm. Hmm. So you just used the word there, change. And I think when I consider the work that you're doing, you know, what's so hard is <clears throat> so much of our concepts around ministry are about change and are about 
discipleship or formation. But often what we mean by that is getting people to do certain things that we think are important for them to do. Now, I, I think this is sort of like youth ministry at its maybe at its lowest level. Ben Connor, who teaches at Western Theological Seminary, talks about it this way. He says, uh, sometimes youth ministry falls into the trap of focusing on creating sober virgins who go to college. And if that's all the youth ministry is, is that we're just trying to keep you sober, keep you from having sex, and make sure you get good enough grades to go to a good school so that you can become a high-functioning member of society, then that has little to do, almost nothing, or, or maybe I would argue nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, there, there's there's nothing there except for behavior modification. So when you talk about change, like you don't you don't actually have that metric in play in the prison. You know, you're not sitting there counting, well, I don't know, maybe you are, but it seems like it would be hard to count Oh well, how many you know kids came to club this week, or right. you know, oh man, my camp numbers are down. You know, like so <laughs> sure. you have different things going on there, and I imagine that uh, when you're sitting with someone who you know is going to live in and out of this cell for the next you know five to ten years, as you say, thinking about change, thinking about discipleship or formation, you know, what you measure as success, those things are different. So what have you learned about ministry when ministry can't be number of kids that show up to an event or go to a camp? What, what has this taught you about what faithful ministry looks like? I'll start by kind of going to kind of what I see as, you know, if you want to call it a, a theology for what I do, sure. a theology for practical prison ministry. But just the more I've followed Jesus and kind of done my own personal journey, um, I've become more and more aware that the Jesus I claim to follow didn't spend much time saying, hey, if you want to follow me, make sure you have your systematic theology right. If you want to follow me, make sure you <laughs> believe in this seven-day literal creation. You got to do or believe it. He didn't spend much time, you know, teaching doctrine and theology. What he what he spent a lot of time on was, you know, Matthew 25 saying, hey, if uh, hmm. you were you were naked, you clothed me. If you, you fed me, you, if you saw me in prison, you were you were visiting me. And so hmm. um, he talked about making the world a better place by caring for people that were, in, were, were, were needy, that were oppressed, that were kicked to the curb and, right. and reminded them that they're loved, that they're valued and that they, uh, they, they have a purpose and that, uh, and that, that, that's what it means to follow Jesus, to make the world a better place and to know we are Christians by our love. And so mm. um, that drives me on a daily basis to, to go, go in and, and remind these guys of that. I had a conversation just yesterday Um inmate that keeps coming into my office and just wanting to talk, wanting to read books. And so I keep reading, giving him books to read. We talk about it. It's been a great relationship, but he has this tendency to just keep beating himself up. And he, you know, he was talking about how he uh, read this book called drop the stones and how it just transformed his life is one of the, his favorite books by my friend, Carlos Rodriguez. Hmm. And he said, I've just been such a judgmental person all my life. Um, and just, that's been great um, um, to kind of be challenged in that area. But then he went on to say, um, or I, I challenged it back. I said, let me ask you this. I said, now that you're learning to drop the stones and how you look at other people, I said, uh, how are you doing at dropping the stones that you've been throwing at yourself? Uh, there you and go. He just looked at me and he's like, man, he's like, if I didn't, if I, if I, if I wouldn't uh, keep on sinning, maybe I could do that chat, but I just keep screwing up, screw, screwing up. I keep falling in my addictions. And so mm. I, I don't know what else to do, but to throw the stones at myself. Wow, I didn't think about the guilt and shame as maybe a, a big, big part of what oh. you work with. 
Gosh, it's huge. And so, of course, I didn't think um, about it. I'm so naive. Luke, yeah. tell us about this. I mean, the, yeah. And so here, here's where I went with it. Yeah. You know, I said, man, I said, I, I feel you. And I, um, you know, kind of went the route of, you know, guilt can sometimes help us be aware of the things we need to change. I said, but that's different than shame. Mm-hmm. shame you know, guilt says, you know, I did bad. Shame says I am bad. I am bad. And uh, the God that created you says, no, 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 no. You're, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Mm-hmm. And I encourage him to maybe just start journaling about that and, and creating that as almost a meditative prayer, or a mantra that he repeats to himself. And wow. uh, I kind of reminded him that, you know, oftentimes we in church like to focus on Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve screwed up. And I said, yeah, we all got brokenness. We all screw up. Sure. Mm-hmm. He said, but the story starts in Genesis 1 where God looked at all he had created and considered it not just good, but very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, maybe you need to spend some more time, you know, resting in the in the beauty of who God has created you to be and that you're, you're a beautiful son of his and that out of that security and, and promise that God has given you, maybe that would be the source for your you know, battling your addictions and stuff like that, instead of just starting with, I'm a piece of crap. Now I got to go figure out how to get better. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a thought. I mean, you're working with people that have made pretty major mistakes, plenty of things to be uh, ashamed of or to feel guilt and shame around. And like you said, I mean, on some level, there's a proper experience of guilt. I mean, if, if you've done something wrong, you are guilty of that thing and should feel a degree of guilt. But to sure. let that be the very thing that defines who you are the rest of your life would be a, a big misunderstanding of identity. And so you're you're working with these folks and you are, uh, what a picture, Luke. You're, you're telling them, hey, convicted felon, Right. You are the beloved of God. And and that's it. Yeah. It's, it's a gift. You know, when I, when I have that opportunity and sometimes I have a chance to, when they lead to reflect on what I just had the opportunity to do, it's uh, it's pretty inspiring and uh, encouraging in my own faith journey and mm-hmm. uh, very thankful for what I get to do. Wow. Wow. So when you think about things like goals or what success looks like, it's maybe not so much about the outputs of you know, getting them to do more of this or, or less of that, it sounds like it's more about announcing the good news for you to faithfully announce the good news of who they truly are uh, and to yeah. reflect that truth back to them in the way that you love them and, and care for them. Yeah, a lot of it comes back to identity and just kind of who they are at the core, of who God's created them to be and um, reminding them of that. Yeah. Okay, so Luke, I don't know if, I mean, I didn't prepare you for this question. So just, you know, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) But you brought up Matthew 25 and, you know, I was in prison and you visited me. Is it, is it too much to say that you have sat across or face to face with Jesus in some way? And if so, will you please tell me about that? I mean, I think if we run that passage to its conclusion, it's saying that we encounter the risen Christ in the inmate. The the sense that I got wasn't so much that Jesus was in that inmate, but that Jesus was in that room with us mm-hmm. as, as the third party that was the, the spirit, spiritual presence that was orchestrating that conversation and, and making himself known to both of us. Mm-hmm. So just the, the presence of God or the faithfulness of God in that place. Yeah, I think it's kind of like that a relational kind of 
oneness that I experienced where I feel like, um, you know, Jesus is speaking through me to that inmate, and then Jesus speaks through that inmate back to me. It's, it's almost like this, okay, the spirit of Jesus is, is in this room, is in this office, is in this relational dialogue right now that mm-hmm. is making himself known through through just the, the content and the, the emotions of the experience and the conversation. So <clears throat> if that's the truth, if Jesus is somehow present and speaking to you through these inmates, um, I mean, number one, I think that requires that you listen. And I know that's a big part of what you do. But, um, you know, the whole hypothesis of this grant, this project that we're doing, is that there is something to be learned at the margins that could not be learned anywhere else. And so there is something revealed about God in the prison in Butner, North Carolina, uh, that isn't necessarily revealed at your church at 11 o'clock on Sunday in Durham or in your three amazing kids or in your wonderful wife. I mean, there's right. there's something beautiful and good and reflective of the of sort of the truth of the gospel that is taking place in the prison and in these people, in the individuals. Um, maybe, I guess, a way to frame the question then is like, what is that gift coming from the margins there that you have experienced there, but maybe not anywhere else. Like, could you characterize that? Or, or, I mean, I don't know if you can name it, but. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, what's coming to my mind first is just the, the principle that, um, man, that we grow most through challenge, you know, just the principle that none of us wish were true, but a typical prison setting being such a heavy, dark, uh, environment, um, that often, feels like it's a hopeless environment, feels like it's a negative evil kind of mm-hmm. environment that um, that's where God's light can be seen to shine the brightest because everything else around it is so dark. Mm. Um, and so maybe that's some of the ideas that um, when we do stretch ourselves and force ourselves to get outside of our comfort zones and get out to the margins, get out to the people that are challenged and oppressed and, and needy, broken, whatever it is, that that's when we see God at work the clearest. That's when um, we grow the most. Um, you know, the whole principle is, you know, not until the muscle is stretched that the muscle grows, you know, so it's just mm-hmm. this whole idea of um, because that environment um, has so many challenges surrounding it that when we are willing to enter it um, and see what God does with it, that, uh, we are able to experience and participate in the most, um, you know, life-changing experiences. Hmm. So it's almost like an invitation into those places that feel hopeless. Uh, maybe the gift there is this evocative call in, you know, that there's hope here, that there's life here when it looks like there is no hope or is no life. Yeah. Well, that sounds difficult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I, some some people talk. There, there's actual studies done that the average lifespan of a correctional worker, law enforcement correctional worker, whatever you know, something crazy like 59 or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and just the, the stress and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've been doing it 10 years, and I uh, hope I'm not being just naive or uh, 
blind to it, but I, I um, you know, overall, I, I love getting up in the morning and doing what I get to do. Um, right. I don't, it doesn't stress me out. We, we are very fortunate or I personally am very fortunate to work in a, an institution where a medium level security institution, uh, most of our inmates have, uh, come to us from, uh, what we call the high level or penitentiary security prisons. Um, mm-hmm. kind of when they have certain amount of years of good behavior, they can step down to the medium level. And that's kind of where I work. Sure. Um, sure. But, um, it's, it's a pretty, it's not your typical, you know, if you watch TV lockup, you know, documentary movies about prisons, stuff like that, it's not like that where I'm at. It's, pr- it's pretty, uh, tame. I mean, obviously anything can go down and we've had stuff go down, but sure. On a day day basis, I, I try to never forget where I am and where I'm working, and always have my guard up. But at the same time, it's especially in the chapel. Guys that are there are typically there for the right reasons, because they care and want to get away from the riffraff of the of the cells and the units, and right. and try to better better themselves. And so we we pride ourselves in creating what we call as the most peaceful place on the compound. Wow! When, when inmates come to the chapel and. So trying to create, you know, I, I preached the other day on, on just the idea of sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? It's a, it's a refuge from the, the challenges of the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the chapel, I hope, is, is a sanctuary for these guys. Sure. So anyways, I, I try to create that environment where, um, so where, well, it can be a, a very stressful, chaotic environment. Um, I'm fortunate to, to be in a place where that's not the case on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, uh, personally um have found myself to be um you know in a healthy place where i enjoy what i do i don't feel threatened on a daily basis the stress level is not shooting through the roof and uh sure and so it, it's it's been good for me yeah well i mean <clears throat> you're saying that i can't help but translate that to just any high school um you know crazy place frenetic place that obviously different levels of threat but uh the idea of youth ministry creating sanctuary as opposed to just programming the heck out of people, um, creating a safe space. I, I like that idea. That's cool. Yeah. So talk to us about, uh, the local church and the local prison. Is there any yeah. room for intersection? Is there any, I mean, there, there's a handful of churches that we're talking to right now across the state of Florida that live near a detention center or, you know, a place where maybe folks would go for one to three years and then, right. and then come out. Maybe they went in at, at 17 or 18 and were charged as an adult and they're going to come out at 21 or 22. And they're looking at, you know, a couple of sides of this. One side would be like, while they're incarcerated, what do we do? Uh, the other side being, you know, when they get out, what's waiting for them on the other side of the fence. And so, you know, what what room is there for the the church as broadly, you know, understood as you'd like to intersect with the prison? Um, the, I think the, so is there room? It's, it's kind of like how, how many rooms can you, can you fill? Because <laughs> as I think about, you know, I grew up in the church. Um, then I served for churches for 13 years. Like, so my whole first, you know, 30 year plus years of life were all in church. And, um, I don't know if I can count more than once or twice that I ever even heard the concept of prison ministry mentioned, published, printed anywhere in any church I ever served. I know. So, that doesn't yeah. make sense because it's in that passage that you read. <laughs> exactly. And we talk about that one a lot. 
Well, no, yeah, we don't actually. We'd love, love to throw it out there, but is anyone doing anything? I don't know. Hardly. Um, I mean, there's a handful, but uh, as a norm, the church is completely turned a blind eye, whatever you want to call it, just neglected that whole aspect and demographic of our culture. So the the need and the, the, the opportunity is huge. Um, what that looks like and how to do so, I think, is very broad and, and can can be tailored to the uniqueness of the church and its members. Um, but a um, couple couple things that I've become aware of is, um, sure, there's there's the base level of everyone saying, okay, well, we need to get a group of people and go do prison ministry and get a get a service going in, in our local prison. That and that's great. Um, but oftentimes, <laughs> what I've heard about that, one of my first stories, a fellow chaplain told me when. I first started working. She said, uh, told me about how uh, one of the local churches in the area called her and was all excited about. They developed this new prison ministry at their church, and they got this team that's that's ready to come into the prison and, and bring Jesus in there. Right. Yeah. Right. He said, uh, uh, you know, Deacon Jones, uh, thank you so much. We're excited about you coming in, but uh, just so you know, Jesus is already in. Jesus the prison. is here. <laughs> yeah. We do that with the high school too, you know. Yeah. We're going to take the gospel to the high school. Exactly. That's weird. Um, so, Good thing Jesus decided to care the moment you showed up. Totally. Okay. Off my soapbox. Back to your story. <laughs> and um, so we um, have those you know, people in something we have to kind of reframe what they do and what the opportunity is. And the ones that actually come in with an open heart and mind to what they're doing uh, have the experience that we've all been uh, exposed to in the past where you come in thinking you're going to, to, to minister to and you get ministered back to, you know, it's a, you end up receiving so much more than you're going to give. And so the volunteers that do that uh, with us, I know have that it's a, it's a, it's a two-way blessing, which I think is the best kind. Sure. Um, but the other part of that is oftentimes churches come and think, Oh, the only thing prison ministry is simply coming in and doing a Bible study. Well, guess what? These guys got nothing but time. And I've found I have a master's of divinity degree and the majority of my inmates know the Bible much more than I ever will. Wow. So, um, I mean, they got nothing but time to study. So often a Bible study is not what these guys need. They need people to come in first, remind them that they're not forgotten. Hmm. Two um, is to give them some hands-on practical tools that they're going to be able to use when they get out of this joint. Um, really? The, uh, the, the issue is, is the, 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 one of the stats that we talked about earlier, how do you measure how successful you're being? One stat that we do have is the recidivism rate. Sure. Okay. How, how, what percentage of these guys are going to get released and be back in the next three to five years? Okay. And um, I don't know what the latest are there all across the board, but majority of those recidivism rates are over 50%. Wow. And so, you know, that's that's jacked up right there. And so what that says to me is uh, we need to do a better job of giving these guys some tools so that they can uh, better themselves and ha- have something to use when they get out to, to stay out. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I noticed when I first rolled up to my job, um, there's a big sign in front of our institution. It says Federal Correctional Complex. Yeah. And I noticed that, oh, that word correction. So we're not basically just throwing these guys in, lock away the key until they get out and then send them out. No, no, no. Our goal is to bring them in here right. and to correct some type of thought, behavior, pattern, whatever it is that's led them to being right. uh, you know, a felon. What can we do to give them something that can correct their lifestyle, their decision-making so that they can be better contributors to society. Right, right. So uh, and we have what we call a reentry program where we're trying to teach um, reentry skills. And so we, we've encouraged people to come in. Hey, you're a financial planner. Come in and do a Dave Ramsey class or come, you know, give these guys money. And one of the number one causes for um, 
incarceration it has something indirectly to do with money. Yeah, the economic implications. That's why I sold drugs. That's why I yeah. robbed the bank. That's why whatever. So money is such a, a common driver to to crime. So teach these guys how to manage money. Mm-hmm. You know, you got you you you're a you've been a dad and you've raised three successful teenagers that are now off in college and doing well and loving Jesus. Come in and do a parenting class. Teach these guys how to be a father. Mm-hmm. You know, so encouraging churches to come in and actually. No, just come in and teach a book on Ro- or a Bible study on the book of Romans. These guys know that. Hmm. What they need is someone to come in there and love on them and teach them some hands-on practical skills that they can actually use and apply to, uh, you know, faith, faith-driven, sure, faith foundation, but give them something that they can uh, use in their life. Right. Wow. So there's that aspect. And then um, on the flip side, another huge void, I think, that the church is missing is once these guys get out, they're, you know, often given that scarlet letter of felon um, and say, you know, so it's hard to find a job. It's hard to sometimes even find a place to live. You know, there's hard, sure. uh, you know, all these basics of how do you, no wonder they're recidivating because they come out and they can't get a job. They can't get money and there's no place to live. Well, I would, you know, rob a bank again too and go back to prison where at least I get three meals a day and a bed to sleep in. Right. Wow. So what, what is the church doing to provide a, uh, a ramp for these guys to come out and reenter society? Um, and, and to get connected with a, a local church or, even you know, oftentimes we, we make it uh, contingent on someone attending our church. Why don't we just say, hey, we're just going to help these people regardless of where they go to church or if they if they go to church. Why, right. why don't we just help these people get back on their feet and support their family? You know, so, again, that's a huge, broad area. And, you know, you, it's so broad that sometimes you don't even know where to begin. But finding out ways that we can uh, help these inmates reenter society is huge. And that that's a, a holistic you know, family pattern that we have to, to address. Well, Luke, I mean, like you just said, there's so, it's such a big, broad way of thinking, but you started with um, what do you have in your community? What do you have to offer? What, you know, finding an entry point and doing something would be better than just sort of throwing your hands up in the air and saying, oh gosh, it's just, it's a systemic issue. It's economics, it's policy, it's housing. We can't touch this. Uh, right. When in reality, you could do a thing, you know, and maybe be a part of a thing and let that just naturally develop into whatever it will be or not. And that's, you know, that's where we, I think, back to your comments a few minutes ago, that's where we have to trust that there is some sort of experience of God in that place that seems hopeless, you know, or or that God would be present in that darkest of places where you know, yeah, if we're looking at these rates of recidivism and people are heading back because of this entire lack of structure to support them when they come out, how are we okay with that as a church? If it were my son, I wouldn't be okay with it. And I would build all sorts of bridges for my son right. to, you know, have the housing, the jobs, the the sense of community, a place to belong uh, before he had it all figured out. And I think that's part of our issue in youth ministry as well is, you know, you have to pass a test before you belong. And I think that has nothing to do with the idea of being called the beloved or being told you are loved uh, before anything else. And those things may or may not follow, right? I mean, there's a part of that that is true no matter what we do, that you are loved, that you are the beloved of God, uh, and it, you might end up back in prison, and it still doesn't change the fact that you are the beloved of God. So, yeah. I, on that note, I just remembered another story I wanted to share with you. Do it. Um, 
kind of back to this kind of relationship driven youth ministry and how important relationships are and, and giving these guys some practical, you know, sense of hope and peace and, and skills to better themselves. But um, when I was at Flagler, um, one of my favorite parts was just developing some lifelong friendships. And out of that experience in college, um, I was blessed to be able to um, start what we uh, call our 10-4 our group. It's a group of five couples that all, at least one of the spouses graduated from Flagler. Um, and we all got married and were involved in, in some type of ministry across the Southeast. And so we decided uh, 20 something years ago now that we would uh, every Columbus Day weekend get together for a weekend just to rekindle our relationships, to fellowship, pray for one another, and just to check in and support each other in our marriages and our ministries mm -hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's been one of the, the uh, biggest gifts out of my uh, Flagler experience is those relationships that have become lifelong. And so we've done that. And so um, when I started this job as a prison chaplain, um, uh, one of the weekends that we did, uh, we actually hosted in Durham where we invited all of those couples to come to Durham for the weekend. And then I had the idea, like, hey, guys, would y'all be uh, interested in coming in as volunteers with me and uh, helping lead my Sunday night service, my Sunday night church service in the prison? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. So I got them all cleared, background checks, and did all the paperwork and, and got them approved to come in and uh, do the service with us that Sunday night. Um, and what we did for the sermon time, instead of me just preaching a standard sermon, I uh, opened it up where each couple had five minutes to give a little snapshot on who they are, what God's doing in their life, how God's... Uh, working in their ministry or whatever they're doing, like I said, across Southeast and various settings. Um, and it just ended up being a, a super beautiful night. And we talked about our relationships and our, our college experience and just the community that we had developed. And uh, so it was just a special night. And then, um, so the service is over, they're kicking the inmates out. They got to go back to their cells and we're all you know, pecking up chairs. And this one inmate hung out in the back waiting for me. And I, I was walking out and he goes, Hey chap, can I, can I talk to you for a second? I'm like, yeah. He's like, man, that was just awesome. I thank you so much for trusting us with your friends. And he goes, I got to tell you, chap, I wouldn't be here tonight if I had friends like you had. Wow. And so to me, what that said was, um, if he had people in his life that he felt like cared about him, that he could trust that were his community, that, uh, he wouldn't gone down the, the road of crime incarceration. Mm. And, uh, it's just a reminder to me that, uh, how important it is for us to have people in our lives that, uh, provide that connection, that community that we're not meant to do this life alone. And so right. that was just a, a, a big, big, big reminder that I'll never forget. Wow. I mean, it, it, it makes perfect sense. When I think about my own life, I think about the community of people that have held me up through all of my experiences, you know, taught me how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to be a friend by doing those things, by watching others, things like that. If you isolate me, I'm done. Hmm. I'm done. For sure. And what a what a haunting picture of the reality for so many people that they are isolated and left to figure this out on their own and then get in real trouble and find themselves there. And so uh, thank God you are uh, people like you have been sent to create an experience of community and fellowship in a context that you know, seems like it would not have that happening. Um, right. But uh, that, that really is a, a beautiful picture of what you can do there. But I'm, I know part of what you're saying is tying that back to what the church looks like on the other so, side. So like, you know, I know for, for us in our young life experiences, the very thing, just that, that foundation model for ministry being relational ministry, mm -hmm. is that really what we're doing is we're helping establish 
these core connections that hopefully would be lifelong with people that will walk through life with us. Right. And so uh, a youth ministry that's able to do that, if nothing else, even if you don't do anything formally prison ministry wise, you're doing preventative maintenance, so to speak. If you're providing a student <laughs> in, your, in your youth group with relationships right. that are lifelong in a sense of community, you're less likely to provide a, a uh, produce a, a student in your youth ministry that's going to come up to me in the chapel and say, hey, chap, if I had friends like you had, I wouldn't be here tonight. Right. They're, they're going to be able to say, hey, I did have friends like that, and therefore that's why I chose a different road. Um, and so that, that wow. at, at the very base is what we can do, and I think in our student ministries. Wow. Maybe youth ministry, simply put, as friendship. Hmm. Friendship. Yeah. So pointing to the reality of who they are in Christ, giving them someone who will walk with them so they're not alone, and uh, creating a, a, a group of people you'd have to run through in order to make those sort of mistakes. Totally. Hmm. Okay, so let's – oh, go ahead. You had something there. I just want to think back to the church that um, I do think tying back into what I shared earlier of the – the lack of fatherhood cycle mm-hmm. is, um, and I, I don't know how this works and it's, it's always messy, but as, um, we talk a lot about it. I know I did when I was a youth pastor, but it never really did much with it is just mentoring. What can we do to, to, uh, take and identify kids that are lacking that male figure presence in their life or whatever it may be mm-hmm. and, uh, establishing some type of mentoring program whether it be with our volunteer leaders or other, you know, adult men in the church or whatever, just, but um, I think because I've seen that as such a core factor in guys that I work with, what led them to their being locked up is what can we as a church do to try to, uh, to target that we're identifying students in, uh, in the community, whether or not they attend your church or not, or just focusing at, you know, working to the schools or the local social services department, whatever it may be, and identifying kids that need mm-hmm. someone that, that's going to take them to coffee or, you know, ice cream once a week and email them and text them once a week just to say, hey, you're not forgotten. You're not forgotten. I'm here for you. Yeah. And that's some type of, of mentoring program that I think, even if you one is better than none. So just finding ways to do that. Right. Well, it's it seems like uh, finding ways to create concrete structures for this mentoring approach would be really helpful piece. I know that, you know, one of the groups of folks that we're talking about are are foster kids that are in high school that live in group homes. And uh, I think one of the things we're going to try and get into with at least one church, if not another, is this idea of of just pairing one-on-one mentors. And so, you know, a kid lives in a group home, they have a consistent mentor. If they bounce around from foster homes, they have a consistent mentor who sort of walks with them from one home to the next, if, if it has to be. I mean, usually those things are happening within the geographical context of a, of a county. And so, you know, it would be feasible that a mentor could follow you. I know there's there's a group that's doing this in Austin, Texas, that we've been looking at, trying to come up with a, a way to learn from them. So, okay, so maybe, uh, maybe if we could land the plane here with uh, any... You know, if we have a youth minister right now listening to this or, or a lay leader in the church, someone who just wants to take a step in this direction, could you point us to any books or any ministries that we could look at? Or, or I mean, where should that person who's interested go from here? I mean, they have no, they don't necessarily have a contact at a local prison or detention center or anything like that. What would, how would you want to help them? Man, uh, it's a good question because there's, there's not a, a go-to resource that I'm aware of. There's, um, I don't know of any good books that 
would get someone started. So mm. the, the best thing I would suggest is even if you don't have a contact at the prison, just find out if, you know, do they have a chaplain on staff and call them and just say, Hey, can I pick your brain for a few minutes? I got this group at the church da, 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 and we're just trying to figure out any way that we can support what you're doing. Do you get those phone calls? Uh, occasionally. Yeah. We're, we're uh, somewhat fortunate to be in an area where fairly close to a, a big metropolitan, the triangle area here with just a church on every corner. And so we, we have probably more, more uh, volunteers than we need in terms of ones that are willing to come in on a weekly basis to, um, you know, lead services or studies or stuff like that. Um, what we need more and which I can't necessarily manage is the ones on the outside that are doing yeah. more of the reentry stuff and, and, and supporting families that, you know, dad's been locked up for 20 years and we, we need help at the home or, you know, all that type of stuff is, is the greater need. I think sure. we, we have things covered fairly well in the chapel. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're doing what we can. We got, we got a, a bunch of faithful church congregations that come in on a regular basis to provide services and remind the inmates they're not alone. So that part where I'm at, we're good. We're good. It's the, it's the coordinating the stuff on the outside uh, for when these guys get released that, that needs the majority of the work. Interesting. So you could literally just call the chaplain or, or reach out to the chaplain. And then the bigger need might be building a bridge out of the prison back into the community or into the society. So right. fascinating. Well, Luke, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for your faithful witness in the prison and at home and in your community. And, you know, I I don't even know. I, I don't know what we're all supposed to take from this conversation necessarily. I, I hear so many different messages about uh, being mentors, about walking with people, you know, not letting them be alone, about announcing the their belovedness before anything else. There's so much in here. So this is great. Um, Very cool. But yeah, thanks so much. And, and hopefully I'll have some fun stories of some churches wrestling with how to uh, put this into action. So uh, that's wonderful. I appreciate you taking the time to, to have this conversation. And if uh, you come across anyone that would uh, want to follow up with me personally, feel free to pass on my contact and uh, I'd be happy to share whatever uh, the resources or guidance I might be able to provide. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Luke. I'm at it. Make sure you uh, give my uh, Flagler peeps and St. Augustine homies uh, my best down there. (laughs) Will do. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices Project. You can learn more about what we are up to at missingvoices.flagler.edu. That's missingvoices.flagler.edu. I want to thank Noble Media for their production of the podcast and Troy Aragon Buchanan for the original music. We believe there are good and wonderful gifts to be enjoyed and voices to be lifted up and heard that exist at the margins of society and the church. I hope today's conversation might just push you to keep these young people in mind. What if your youth ministry made room for the kids we talked about today? Until next time, be well. (laughs) 